you all are in for a treat today. <laughs> and, and I'm laughing because I had an extraordinary experience with interviewing a man named Dr. Charles H.F. Davis, who is going to be the interview of this episode. Uh, Dr. Davis is an assistant professor at the University of Michigan, and he is a scholar, he is an activist, and he is just real. You know, he is a real person doing real work and really changing the world in a big way. Um, I found myself almost having a hard time responding back to his answers to my questions with follow-up questions because he motivated me in such a way to just go out and do something, right? Whatever you do, just do something to to further and, and better not only yourself, but those who are most oppressed around you, right? Um, there are always people who are looking for opportunity and, and access and, and there's so many barriers. And, you know, just to, to be better to help someone else, this is a guy who, you know, again, has dedicated his entire life to to activism and scholarship. And so I am so grateful that you all get to engage with this interview. I'm grateful that Dr. Davis gave me the time that he did to be able to really teach me uh, as he teaches you all in this interview. Um, so without further ado, uh, this is Dr. Charles H.F. Davis sharing his brilliance uh, with the world once again. This is The Black Stage. Dr. Davis, thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, today. I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. You know, obviously, I've been a fan of yours for a very long time. Um, and, you know, despite only actually meeting you in person once, um, I feel like, you know, we got a connection and, and it's great. And I'm just super proud to see, like, all the amazing things that you're doing in the field. Uh, that being said, there are a couple things that I definitely want to talk to you about. Um, but first, you know, you are such a huge scholar. Um, and an and activist and, and someone who is speaking to the moment of now. Um, and I really want you to talk to uh, the listeners about like what brought you into the work that you are doing? What was your journey and how were you able to, to transcend that into really a movement, uh, if you will? Uh, well, Brendan, first of all, I just want to thank you for giving me the space. Um, you know, you know my specific history, especially for recent years, so I don't take opportunities like this for granted. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, you know, we only met in person recently, but, you know, where I guess we're also like kind of millennials. I know there's this whole debate of like who's a millennial and who isn't. We're not those millennials, but we are millennials. Um, and I think we knew sort of in that exact moment, like the kinship was already there. And it was almost like we were just picking up as old friends, even in like a preliminary conversation. So, um, you know, so I just appreciate the space you're providing me to, to, to do this with you on this podcast. Um, so, yeah, I mean, my journey has been, you know, really interesting and meandering. Um, I talked with this you know, with my students about this a lot, um, you know, this notion of presentism that historians teach us about is, you know, effectively we see people as they are and not who they were in part because we don't know about their journey and their history. Um, and so although people sort of assume that, you know, my trajectory was one that was always planned this way from the beginning or that like I haven't had bumps in the road, um, it's something we ascribe to people that we deem or perceive to be successful in some kind of way. And for me, it's been uh, anything but that for, you know, a variety of reasons. And so, uh, you know, I won't go to the very, very beginning, but um, when I think about what I do now and how I think about the world, so much of that is rooted in 
being the son of a retired army colonel and a school teacher. Um, my dad was born in Greensboro, North Carolina, grew up in Tuskegee, Alabama, both of which are historic places uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, my mother's family is originally from South Carolina, but she grew up in a uh, little town called Yellow Springs, Ohio, coincidentally near where Dave Chappelle currently lives. Oh, wow. um, uh, and her father was in the Army Air Corps at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Um, and so my name even is actually my, uh, which is crazy, my maternal grandfather's name is Charles Davis, and my father's name is Charles Davis. And his, uh, my dad's middle initial is H for Harold. My grandfather's name is F uh, for Frederick. And so Charles H.F. Davis III is sort of a combination of being two different Charles Davises. But ironically, which scared the hell out of my mother, is that both of them went to Tuskegee for school. Both of them are Kappas. Both of them are in the military. And they both wear a size nine shoe. And so it was very close to me not even existing because that's a very scary thing. I imagine if you date somebody who's damn near one of your parents. Um, but, uh, but certainly that lineage and that history um, is very deeply rooted in my perspectives on blackness and what it means to be black in society, especially growing up as a military kid where I both navigated sort of the predominantly black rural South um, and where I spent a lot of my summers uh, of understanding what that meant and also growing up in multiracial and predominantly white communities. Um, as an individual and even as a family that sometimes is heralded, this is like, you know, premier Cosby era type, you know, um, uh, exceptional black sort of notions uh, based on what people perceive that you've come from and where you are. And so all of that uh, came into a really complicated understanding of what it meant for me to be a black person as I entered into college. I went to Florida State University, which is in Tallahassee, Florida, um, which has become um, much more, I think, commonly known for people now than it was before for a number of reasons. But as we also know, Florida A&M University is there. And so um, for me, the experience in Tallahassee was so much defined by navigating those boundaries that's literally across a train track that separates North and South Tallahassee. And that train track actually was used to um, move cotton in the South that was steaming the Confederacy, right? And so, so much of that geospatial dimension of blackness of where we actually reside and this notion of blackness being tied to space, place, and time were things that were emblematic of my college experience. Um, and you know, there's always that sort of HBCU PWI debate that happens every year and every year it's trash. Um, where I actually learned so much from both of those places, but I really credit the people that I met um, and the relationships I formed with those at FAMU to really strengthen this sort of perspective and value that I always had as someone who's, you know, the, the son of two people who, you know, went to HBCUs um, and grandson of folks that went to HBCUs, um, but that it helped me put into perspective this notion of how complex it is to be a part of this group of black people and how none of us are identical or the same and that our access to um, and success in white institutions does not uh, preclude us from experiencing racism. And that was constantly a back and forth for me uh, to the point where, you know, I was not feeling enriched in so many different ways about my experiences at Florida State. Um, I was in a lot of, you know, predominantly white things. I was in the drum line there. Uh, and so the band is a white institution. As you know, the band is the thing at the HBCU, right? So, so that's even a part of it. Um, but also in my major, I majored in English and my mother's an English teacher. And so I've always had a very good appreciation for literature, but that was very deficient in terms of what it meant for you know, a raised person like myself. And so African-American studies was sort of emerging at Florida State at the time for a minor and a program. And that's just where I found myself and my people. I was deeply involved in the Black Student Union there. Um, and, so, um, and so I went to become an Africana Studies major only to find out that you couldn't major in Africana Studies at Florida State. And they said, you can go to FAMU to do that. Mind you, I pay tuition at Florida State. But I was able to do a minor, and that really, I think, 
in combination with the experiences that we had as a collective at Florida State was so instrumental in the way I think intellectually. It exposed me to things that I knew basically on the surface, but really didn't engage with deeply, like Black Feminist Thought by Patricia Hill Collins is like the first sort of explicit Black Feminist text that really challenged me to develop in ways that um, even now I'm still making sense of. Um, and a lot of that was part of the radicalization of thinking of what it meant to have an African-centered self, an African-centered community, um, so much so that my sort of initial desires were to like open a black school. And this is sort of the beginning of the charter school boom, and you and I've had this conversation. Um, and so that was sort of the impetus of me wanting to transition a bit um, into education, um, was to think about what it meant to actually start at the beginning of having a really deep sense of who we are as black people, which I think I definitely got growing up, but it was muddied by the waters of the predominantly white environments, the navigating a sense of belonging, um, what it meant to do that as someone who could be in relationship with black people through sport, because that was a limit of the white institution at the time, but fall out of relationship when it came to being in certain AD classes in a predominantly white district, right? And so I wanted to think about how do I interrupt that? Um, and so that was really a big part of me becoming an educator on top of being a third generation educator at that. My grandmother was a librarian, like I said, my mom's an English teacher. And then sort of what pushed me into higher ed was as a really actively engaged undergraduate student, you know, for some reason we don't think of people that work at colleges and universities as like having a profession, right? It's like you just work here in financial aid or in student activities or in Greek life. Um, and I found out like, oh, higher ed is a thing. Um, and so I was like, oh, maybe that's sort of the direction that I want to go. But because I studied other things prior, I didn't really have education experience other than I spent four years as a music instructor. Um, as I mentioned, I was in the band at Florida State. And, um, and so I spent that time as a music instructor. I ultimately started to apply to grad school. I'd had a master's in integrated marketing communications where I was doing my primary work as a designer and a marketing strategist. Um, and I was actually very unsuccessful with trying to get entry to a graduate program in education in part because I was like, all right, did the you know, bachelor's, did the master's, going to do the PhD. And uh, that was actually really difficult. And so I had applied to a variety of schools. And uh, as you know, because we've navigated this process, you don't always get the best advice from everybody about how to do that. There's a bunch of stuff, right, that you just don't know. Um, and there was just hella stuff that I didn't know about that. Uh, people were just like, oh, just write a compelling statement. And it's like, okay, right. But it's like, it's not like undergrad, right? It's not, it's not like undergrad. So I can imagine like the first several statements said nothing about like research interests or how I fit well with the institution or the faculty or the desire to produce knowledge, right? Um, and I think really the, the notion of getting a PhD or a doctorate at all in a black community isn't thought through those lenses, right? And, um, and so there's a paper that, that Sean Harper and I published that really talks and gets at that notion of this, this idea of the credential itself as a passport to conversations and ways to gain resources and access for your community. And that's really the perspective I wrote from, which like no graduate program really is interested in hearing that, right? Like that's cute, but like that's not what we do here. So you know, I applied for uh, a PhD, one of those schools at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education, and like many other schools, uh, I was not accepted into admission, but Penn said, hey, you can come get a master's, and that'll be a springboard into the PhD for the specific program there, and, you know, again, I'm sort of steeped in Africana tradition, so I read a lot of Du Bois, and like, even Harvard made Du Bois get another degree, so I'm like, well, I'm not bigger than Du Bois, so I can get a second degree, right, and so I, I was on the Kanye West plan, uh, the old <laughs> Kanye, and I got my master's master's uh, at Penn GSE, and despite you know, the work that I felt I did there, the relationships I cultivated in producing work and presenting at conferences, uh, although applying again to four PhD programs, including Penn, I still didn't get into any programs. And so I went back to uh, advertising uh, to work um, and then applied for another year. And so it took four admission cycles, I think 16 applications before I got accepted into a doctorate program and uh, ultimately you know, chose the University of Arizona um, in part for the um, 
the caliber of its social sciences in addition to its higher ed program. And they had some faculty that you know, specifically supported my research interests. Um, and uh, it won't come as any surprise that Tucson, Arizona is not a black metropolis. Um, and I was moving from uptown. I lived on 123rd and 7th, uh, although I worked on Madison Avenue. And so I'm leaving, you know, what, I guess, I'll say what Harlem was, because it's always something different every time I come back to visit, um, right? This is before Whole Foods and Banana Republic, like Linux Labs is still open. Um, I'm leaving that to go into Tucson, Arizona. And, you know, one of the things that I always sort of push as people think about where they go to school, we were having this conversation on Twitter too, of this, this notion of having to like go into the wild basically and be lonely and do this work. Uh, that's part of this American rugged individualism narrative. Um, but when I was thinking about doing race work, you know, people say, why the hell would you move to a place like Arizona? It's terrible. And I'm like, well, if I'm serious about doing this work, I need to go to the place or the site of injustice, right? To actually like do better work. And even more importantly to me, part of the choice with Arizona too, was that I was able to break through the black white binary that had predominantly framed my understanding of race as a scholarly subject. And as you can imagine in Arizona and other places in the Southwest, I'm originally from Texas, um, that the Chicano white binary, the Latinx white binary is much more prominent. And so it gave me a fuller sense of like the complexity of race and race relationships and how those um, work within this broader framework of anti-blackness, which we're gonna talk about today and indigeneity in a particular kind of way. And so it really in hindsight, ends up becoming the perfect place for me to go to do my work irrespective of some of the things that are also valuable to me in terms of proximity to other black people. Um, so fast forward a bit, I'm in graduate school and uh, I come out of the tradition of like trying to get stuff done quickly for whatever reason, because that's sort of a symbol of like, you know, being smart and the people that I sort of was mentored under all had like finished their PhDs in like two and a half years, something crazy. Um, and so I felt the need to sort of persist at a rapid pace to get things done. And I also felt like, you know, I was a little bit older. I come in with these other credentials. Um, and so I kind of fast tracked myself to transferring coursework, finish my other coursework. And um, in doing that, um, I was able to finish all of my coursework, my qualifying exam, and my dissertation proposal in two years. Wow. And there was an intervention at that moment that happened during my oral qualifying exam, and I'll never forget it. You know, I had the committee that was sitting around the table. And um, as, as you may know, right, like the qualifying exam at the oral stage, like people are testing you on your broad sense of knowledge and the depth of your specific area. And mine was none of that right? Like that was just not the conversation. Most of the conversation was really pushing me to think about why I felt like I needed to be in a hurry to get this thing done and what I was missing as a result of that. And I didn't interpret it necessarily that way at this time, but like the questions people were asking me were these like higher theoretical and, and uh, probing questions that if I really thought I was ready to be sort of this quote unquote public intellectual that I would be having to answer in a public sphere that I actually was not prepared for. And so it raised out for me this, this notion of my advisor, Gary Rhodes, uh, who's at the University of Arizona as a sociologist of higher education. Um, he said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, it's okay to be quick, but don't be in a hurry. Because when you're in a hurry, you miss the important details of the process because you're focused on that product. And that's something I've taken with me everywhere and I advise my students with today. Um, and so from that point, um, I was already had like a proposal. I was going to do my dissertation. I was going to do a summer project basically of case studies so I could just like be done by the following fall. And one of the other people on my committee who was a quant scholar actually, um, who received his PhD uh, coincidentally at the University of Michigan where I'm now a faculty member, um, you know, he said, hey, look, 
if you're going to be, you know, a qualitative scholar and you're going to do rigorous work, you actually have to just do that. You can't look for shortcuts or ways to fast track and get around it. And uh, as you know, I'm an ethnographer, right? So we do deep, engaged, sort of qualitative study. And, uh, and he said, that's already something that's not really, you know, widely respected in our field, in part because people take shortcuts. So if you're going to do an ethnography, do a damn ethnography and spend the time you need to. And so that pushed me to say, all right, let's not think about efficiency, right? Let's invest in the process. And so I actually was doing two years of field work. Right. And I said, I already did all the other stuff you're supposed to do in two years. And I've done two years of field work and another 16 to 18 months of writing. Um, and the result of that wasn't just a better dissertation at the end. It was also the result of investing in people in a way that I didn't because research doesn't teach you to think about participants and respondents as like human beings. Right. They're just sort of cogs in this overall wheel of research production. And as someone who studies activism and was doing a project with people I actually knew from undergrad, um, that was something that ultimately was the, um, you know, seed that was planted, but I wasn't nurturing to grow. Mm -hmm. And as a result of these conversations and interventions, um, I think I came out in a much better place that allows me to think now, given what I do in a way that a lot of academics who I think in many ways are exploiting the movement um, or the rhetoric or the language um, of that and aren't in actual relationship with the communities who are doing this work. Um, it makes me think of what this could have looked like differently and how it could be like a lot of other people, right, who are benefiting and not making sure that, that gets passed around um, and actually caring about people in their everyday lives. And I think that's sort of the, the biggest takeaway from this graduate school experience is one, PhD, two middle names and working at a fancy white school, right, does not, again, sort of preclude me from the uh, systemic and the material realities of racism. It also doesn't make me any better than everyday black people, right? And I think especially about the people from whom we received education that didn't have any in the formal sense, right? I think about my grandma Hattie, who raised 15 children in a one-room shack in Watonka, Alabama, and the lesson she taught me on that front porch when she was combing the hair that she loved so dearly, right? Like, there's so many of those things that we need to kind of understand and trouble that access to these um, artifacts of respectability, right, don't actually separate you from this. And the moment you think that they do, as Cornell West would say, is you get renegrified, right? Something's going to happen to you and remind your ass that you're black. Um, and the further you get away from being in a relationship with people, right, the further you get away from having community. And when you don't have community, you don't have people, you end up being kind of lost, especially as a black person in this world. Um, and so I've said a lot, I'll kind of like leave it there. And we have a lot more to, to discuss. But uh, that's the, I think, long and short of, you know, the journey and, and how I ended up where I'm at. You know, Charles, your, your journey is incredible, honestly, because, you know, I think that, you know, what you bring is a lot of humility and honesty um, that I think that a lot of academics don't necessarily bring. Um, we tend to showcase, and I'll say we because I, I still consider myself an academic, um, we tend to, to showcase the best and the brightest, and we don't necessarily talk about, like, what it took to kind of get there, uh, the trenches, the journey, specifically before the institution. It's just like, okay, we got the PhD, so now we are sh bright, shiny stars, and we're here, mm -hmm. um, but there was a lot that, that, uh, that had to take place for us to get there. On top of that, um, I think that specifically for Black academics, that trajectory is completely different. And I completely identify with what, with what you're saying. Um, even though my journey to getting a PhD was a little different from yours, um, the lack of knowledge, um, there's nothing that can prepare a Black person to getting a PhD and navigating the academy. <laughs> it's just, it's just not, there is no script. There is no um, plan. There, there's nothing there. And I talked to so many people about this, about like what it actually takes to get a PhD, especially at some of these institutions 
that are known um, to not do do right by Black people. Um, that. Mm -hmm that are truly violent spaces um, for um, people of color at, uh, in its entirety. And so, so, so yeah, and I, I appreciate that. But I think that what, what separates you from so many is that like, although you are very much so an academic, you are also an activist. You are also out there doing speaking engagements. You are staying relevant because I think that sometimes you can get so buried in the research. And as you were saying, like, you know, not really looking at your participants as people, um, um, you're looking at them as numbers, like almost like quantitative mm -hmm. data that you can just kind of move on to the next to get published because that's what like, you know, the academy, these institutions always say like, get published, yeah. get published, get published. The best journals, that's what you want that no one's going to read, but like, that's what you want. Nobody. Like, that, that's what you want to validate your, your career. And like, I see you, you know, out here publishing and like, major piece i think that you just actually had a piece that came out in the los angeles times and i'm like that is you know what's so important um for me as an academic um in in staying culturally relevant you know you got to meet people where they're at people aren't going to necessarily be looking at the harvard review every harvard educational review every single day but they're going to look mm -hmm. at complex you know they're going right. to they're going to look at the los angeles times they're going to look at the new york times they're going to look at um the root or the grio you know what i mean and it's like how do you meet these folks and bring this information and knowledge that you're so privileged to have but i think that i also want to kind of shift a little bit because you know we are in this very fascinating time that i think that is very familiar but it's very different um you know i've mentioned um, numerous times in previous podcast episodes that like we're not we're navigating um two pandemics, right? You mm -hmm. have mm -hmm. uh, the pandemic that is very new, which is the coronavirus, COVID-19, um, that has really kind of like made us like, you know, stop everything that we're doing uh, and be in the house um, if we're so privileged mm -hmm. to have a home to be in. Uh, and then you have something that is um, the, the, the story as old as time, that is racism in this country. Um, and, you know, I remember, you know, I was in graduate school during um, the first iteration of Black Lives Matter in its, in its, in its inception. Um, and like being in New York City during that time and really kind of seeing and hearing the conversations um, that were happening at, at various different institutions, whether they be mm -hmm. at corporate institutions, academic institutions. And it was such a tug of war. Um, and, and it was such a, a, um, a cultural um, clash of what is appropriate and what can and cannot be said. And then now in this phase uh, of it, in, in conversations now, it's like every corporation has to have a Black Lives Matter statement. Everyone's hiring a diversity role, as we were talking before this podcast um, started. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's just, it's a fascinating thing. Everyone's protesting. And in fact, like, you know, in New York most recently, Charles, uh, we had a, uh, it was a Black Trans uh, Lives Matter uh, protest mm -hmm. in front of the Brooklyn Museum. Majority of them were white. Majority mm -hmm. of the people who were out there, thousands of people, they were white. And I think that there's something to be said about this moment of like, what is the shift? Is there a shift happening? Is this because... Um, is this because people are bored at home or is it because mm -hmm. that they are actually being forced to reckon with something internally inside of them? And so I really want to like kind of talk to you about one, where do you believe this movement is going? Is this movement right now in its current iteration going to create the systemic change that we want to see in this country? One, two, for the people who want to become allies, 
audience, uh, the people who are just now engaging with um, the content, uh, we'll call it content, if you will, because right now everything's on digital, uh, the content of information that is might be new or might be fresh to them or something that they just tried to ignore, but they're no longer ignoring it. What advice do you have for these folks um, to actually be authentic allies? And so I guess I'll start with the movement piece, like where mm -hmm. do you see this kind of going? Um, and then we can kind of go uh, and shift to what does it mean to be an ally? Yeah, I mean, you raised so many different points, um, right? Like we were in and finished grad school and in, in the same era, effectively. I always think about, you know, coming out of my field work and literally writing my dissertation when Michael Brown is shot, when Freddie Gray is killed in Baltimore, and the, the tension that exists within me about whether to leave my office and do frontline work or to stay there and to write. Um, and uh, that's sort of a conversation for another time. But, um, but part of it is too, right, this, this shift in the broader public discourse that, you know, in many ways is profitable and not just from a financial standpoint, but the social capital associated with taking a stand for these things, right? Like the things that, you know, we were damn near doxxed for in saying in public spaces are things that people are praised for doing now, right? Like you, I mean, Roger Goodell is like a perfect example of this in the NFL, right? Like you're going to issue an entire statement and not even say Colin Kaepernick's name, Right. Like you end up at this point that now it's bad for business to be against this thing. Right. Which is something that movements make happen. Right. They make the optics and the narratives such that it's bad for business for these things not to continue as, as they've been doing. And so it's very interesting because it's not only does every business have to have a statement. Right. Like individuals got to have statements. Right. Like it don't matter if you got like 300 followers or 30,000 followers. You say some wild shit on the Internet and somebody pulls those receipts and finds your job. Right now, you got to put something in the notes function on your phone and screenshot it and post it to your personal social media um, that says, "No, I like unequivocally stand with these people, et cetera, et cetera." And part of that is this really sort of, you know, um, and so my work focuses on like the role um, that digital and new media play in social movements, particularly with Black social movements. But the way that mediation sort of functions, right? And Mary Joyce. Um, talks about this in, in, in her work about the role that social media plays in today's society is not necessarily different than any other medium has played, right? We've always had newspapers and radio and other things that were part of shaping narratives, but social media has a scale change, right? It allows more people to participate and engage in a conversation that isn't one way, but two way, right? So everything we put out, someone can respond and engage in a discourse. And I think that has a huge part to play with the level of pressure or influence that can be exerted by a movement when other folks are going to engage and participate, which is to say, maybe everyone who's white that's engaged in this moment isn't doing so because they're anti-racist, but wants to make sure that they're not perceived as racist or that they're non-racist, right? And this is partly because the, the practice of anti-racism, right, is something that has to be consistent and longitudinal, if you will, right, a longer period of prolonged engagement over time um, in ways that to proclaim oneself as that, as an idea, yet not have any of the body of work or a history that dictates that or having not done the readings, as I say, right, um, that to me is such a result of the optics associated with how people can see other people and this voyeurism that's associated with understanding who people are, which is why every election season, right? Like all those white kids we went to high school with, we just unfriending them like inevitably based on some things that come out in the political views, um, right? And so I think that has a, something to say about the performative equity, right? Or the performative aspects of allyship, which we'll transition to, and whether you can commit to an understanding the deep interpersonal identity work and the role that you play within the larger systems of which you are a part to undo fundamentally racist uh, policies and practices. Um, and so I don't know what's to attribute. I do think there's a larger 
uh, set of political consciousness happening. Because one of the other things that media, social media has afforded us is greater access to political education that mm. we didn't have, right? Yeah. Like I can, I just talked about it with the LA Times piece, um, you know, that I posted that I wanted to make sure that I thanked uh, specific organizations like Dream Defenders, Power Youth Center for, um, you know, down, down in Miami for, for youth justice, uh, the Philly Student Union, Movement for Black Lives, BYP 100, uh, but also individuals um, that I started in many ways following on social media that have just done so much, you know, unpaid and, and otherwise labor associated with making sure that we're like up on game and what needs to, to happen in these spaces, particularly around like prison and police abolition. And so Miriam Kaba, for sure, prison culture, if you're not following her, definitely follow uh, her and the amazing work that she does with critical resistance um, and so many other people. Um, but that has made people have access to information that perhaps felt it was reserved for the academy, that actually it isn't, right? So where scholars should be publicly engaged in this broader town hall, um, I think is really instrumental in the, what people can consume in terms of information. The Twitter historians, if you will, that excavate these archives for us and put them on main stage, not just for folks who... Um, are wanting to be allies or aspire to be allies or folks who are dealing with these systems of oppression and don't have access to the language necessarily all the time uh, to express like those things. Um, so all of that comes together in a space where you're going to have a broader set of participation and also these otherwise separate smaller moments that are happening, these flashpoints or precipitating events as we would call them, right? These things become interconnected because you can see what's happening in Ferguson, Missouri, that's happening in Sanford, Florida, that's happening in Baltimore, Maryland, that's happening in Chicago, Illinois, all at the same time. And these things become interconnected because now I can share tactics and strategies at a moment's notice, right? Like literally protesters in Palestine can say that they stand with Ferguson protesters by giving them the strategy and tactics to navigate tear gas while also fighting against injustice and demonstrate solidarity that just like the Panthers would have done uh, previously with you know, movement workers in South Africa would have taken much longer and much more time and resources to make available. So all of that coalesces to have a broader sense of participation in this movement, a more cross-sectional, intersectional level of engagement that we probably couldn't have seen previously um, that we are certainly seeing now. Um, and I think that is something that we have to take note of um, in ways that says, well, what does this mean for us and how we go forward, right? I think part of that is this enduring question that I'm always consumed by and interested in of what do we do about the disruptions within the disruption? Yeah. And what I mean by that, right, is like when we talk about th these ideas of racial solidarity or gender solidarity or whatever the case may be that you know, from an intersectional standpoint of understanding the ways that systems and structures overlap and intersect to create those unique marginalizing experiences for those that live at them, right? In that moment, what does the work actually look like when we're committing so much effort to fight white supremacy and not as much effort to fight transphobia, mm. right? Um, and I think that becomes a critical juncture because as black women and black trans folks continue to teach us, right, um, as identity politics is an origination teaches us, when those who are the most marginalized are free, then all of us become liberated in the process. And so for me, the movement has to continue to push toward one of the things I think is, is really beautiful about what we see, even though it's still being contested, right, is the predominant organizations we know and the sort of popularized organizers that we know in many regards are black women and black trans folks and black queer folks in ways that you don't have, you know, a Bayard Rustin uh, it marginalized in the way that he wasn't co-opted by the FBI in particular ways. And so part of it is that what it means for myself as a cisgender person, as a heterosexual person, is to take less space to know that the movement isn't about us and us alone and actually follow the leadership of Black women, Black queer folks, and Black trans people in particular, right? Because they've already created the lane, they've laid the blueprint, as, as BYP would say, shout out Fresco Steve's uh, working through a Black queer feminist lens, right? Like that's the direction we need to go. 
Um, and so I hope that the movement for all of its groundswell will not continue to meet resistance by cisgendered heterosexual folks, um, folks who have other forms of privilege that may not be their blackness, that ultimately disrupts the ability to create racial solidarity because we're not actually fighting for all black lives, right? right. We're fighting for selective black lives that we deem to be respectable and in line with certain parts of the status quo. Yeah, yeah, and it, honestly, and that, and that speaks specifically to what's been continuously on everyone's feed and I believe on everyone's conscious with Breonna Taylor, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And the fight for justice for her. Um, and it, it and, and just also like, you know, the continuous uh, just trauma and terror that's been happening to black trans women um, and like the lack of media coverage and conversation and mm -hmm. consistency. I mean, it's, 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 it's so problematic. And I, I think that that, you know, again, um, not there, there are continuous statements on, on social media around like all black lives matter, right? All, right. Not just right. a select few, right. not just a particular bunch, all. Um, but, but Charles, when it, as it pertains to allyship, um, and as people are, are coming into this movement in particular, um, what do you suggest uh, for these folks to do? Um, I love how you said, like, you did, if you aren't doing the readings, you said, man, you mentioned about not doing the readings, and, like, that's something that, you know, I, I think that professors are, are, are quick. Uh, you didn't do the readings. You didn't read this, because if you read this, you would have not been asking this question, um, or you wouldn't be right. acting this way. And I think that, you know, mm -hmm. um, we, we expect, or there needs to be understanding that folks are going to stumble and they're going to make mistakes, and that's the whole point of learning, right? That's the whole point of becoming a student um, of something and, and engaging with something in a particular way. But, but what do you believe uh, uh, allies to do? Uh, and, and I'm going to just put it out there like that because there's no fancy way to really put, to yeah. really place it. It's just what do you think that they need to do? Because I, I know folks, you know, want to do more than just put a black box on their Instagram feed mm -hmm. or like, you know, um, spend money at a black bit, black home business. These are great. These are great things. But if there needs to be more, there needs to be more. Yeah. I mean, the two sort of, uh, you know, umbrella buckets that I would put these two things is get educated and get engaged. Mm -hmm. And then really the question is, how do I do that? Right. And so it's not just to me a to do list of what things to do, because what most people are actually asking is, what don't I do? Right. Or the, the constant check in that we both get from, you know, well meaning white people. Um, is this racist or was this racist? How do I make sure that it isn't racist? Right. And so this sort of is at the intersection of this notion of what constitutes non racism versus anti racism. Right. And what you're opposed to both. Uh, rather than what you're for often determines how your course of action happens. So when it comes to getting educated, right, one really important thing, especially for white folks, this is for all folks of occupying positions of power and privilege, is that you don't place the burden of your education on people who are experiencing the system of oppression Woo! from which you benefit. Say it right? girls. <laughs> and so this always happens. It's the black tax, it's the trans tax, it's the, you know, sex tax or gender tax. It's all of these ways that we um, expect right, and almost get indignant about if we don't receive the free labor of those who are experiencing oppression for not educating us. Now, there's some caveat to that for educators specifically, which I'll get to, but you should not come with that present expectation that your black friend or your trans friend is here to educate you personally about things you don't know, right? Again, I go back to the information age and social media. You have the entire fucking internet, fam, right? You have Google the same way that I do, right? Um, and so if Dr. Gonna, Google works for everyone, it does. Right. I used to like have uh, when I worked in advertising, part of corporate culture, you know, people send you those dumb emails about like, Hey, do you know the answer to this? And I would send them back this uh, link 
and it was let me Google that for you. And it would type in their question into the link and it would just pull up the Google results, right? Just sort of as like a smart ass remark, but it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, it right? is. But you know, to the broader point is like, don't expect that labor from, uh, from folks who already are going through so much just to live their everyday lives, right? That you can actually get educated. And, and the perfect way to frame this is in any other way for our professional selves, right? Like if you wanted to learn how to change the oil in your car, right? You would go to YouTube and you would Google that shit and you would say, oh, let me see the video and you would learn how to do it on your own, right? If you're in a professional role and there's a new software that comes out that you don't know, but you know you need to know, you would do your due diligence to get up to speed, read the tutorials, look at the manual. You would do all of this thing. When it comes to fighting for justice, we seem to like forget that skill that we otherwise apply to other aspects of our life, right? Um, and I think that becomes just so important to think about the ways that we already are doing things that are transferable, but in a new context that we need to approach with just what we say, like remediating our illiteracy around these issues. Um, and we need to think in meaningful ways about the, um, you know, ways that we reproduce the things that we say we want to undo in the people within our immediate proximity. Um, Damon Young wrote an amazing piece that came out in the New York Times today um, about sort of this desire to not want to continue to have the race conversation with every white person he encounters especially those who are more familiar with him now that his book, you know, sort of came out. Um, and we all know him from like very smart brothers and years of doing work, but it was such a poignant piece. And he sort of wrestles with this notion of like having to do that work and being paid for, it, but also reserving the right to like not do it, even if it is for pay, mm-hmm. um, because it's just taxing at a certain level that like, we just don't want to do this in perpetuity. And I think about this in my own work and that for many people who I'm in relationship with that aren't doing this every day, I'm the person they go to for this. And this is like, you know, black folks and white folks included in part, cause they know that I do this. But I also teach about this stuff. I do research and writing about this stuff. And I also live my life as a black man, right? So like, I almost never get a break from any part of this exercise. Um, and I know people are well-meaning and they just want help and I try to provide that. But it also, I don't think people always process through like, oh, Charles is probably already dealing with a lot and don't have time for my little question right now, right? Um, I'll, I remember that there was a, um, you know, a person on Facebook from college who I forgot that I was even friends with on, on social media and hadn't talked to in years in the inbox saying like, hey, do you know any resources that talk about black people and PTSD? And I'm just like, I mean, I do, but also like, I haven't heard from you in however long. And the first thing I hear from you is an ask for me to like give you resources on this very specific thing that you could have just found, right? And so I just like let it sit there for, you know, a week or so. And then eventually I just like responded when I felt like I was in a better place to do that. But it's like, part of the audaciousness of that request even, because that's usually what happens too, right? Like we scroll our friends list or our phone, probably for someone we don't even talk to or in a relationship with, which is the person we hold up when someone says like you're racist or sexist or homophobic, right? right. Um, and then you reach out to that person who you don't even talk to regularly. You don't ask how they're doing, what they need, if there's ways you can be supportive in that moment. So it, I think it, all of those have- It's almost dehumanizing in a way, right? Because, absolutely. Because like it, it really, it's like, I'm not even thinking about the emotional trauma and baggage that you're experiencing. I just want to, I want it completely focused on me. And I think that folks aren't even realizing that that is perpetuating the same problem that you're trying to create a solution for. That I'm going to, I'm trying to understand racism. I'm trying to understand anti-blackness. And so therefore I'm going to ask my black friend, my lone black Mm -hmm. friend to now do the emotional labor and work to train me about something that I'm already doing and putting out. Like, it's like, it's almost, it's, (laughs) I laugh at it sometimes because like that's happened to me numerous times where Mm -hmm. people have reached out to me and asked me to do that type of labor and and work. And I'm like, no, and it's not my responsibility. The same way that we have to navigate the world as black people, 
um, to understand and to survive and thrive is the same way that you all need to do the work to unlearn the things that you have consistently learned and been taught over the years. I think it's only fair. It's only fair. If we have to do all this just to survive, right? you can do the work to undo all the damage mm -hmm. that you have done in your own life and that people in your surrounding community have done. I mean, it's only fair. And some people don't Absolutely. look at it like that. And I, I think that it's, it's very um, complex for black academics in particular, um, especially those who work at predominantly white institutions, because I see, I've seen, and we've both seen the amount of labor it takes to make a difference and students who just refuse to learn and refuse to engage with what they deem to be either unworthy or not true, or they're just so mm -hmm. entrenched in what their beliefs are that they refuse to even try to move the needle in their consciousness. Um, Absolutely. And, I, and, I, and I'm fascinated with, I guess, maybe some personal experiences or examples that you have come across as a black academic um, facing these challenges, right? One with like having to be the one who carries the torch of all the black students um, that mm -hmm, has to be mm -hmm. that, that go-to person to support everyone because that's emotional labor too that we don't necessarily yep. sign up for, but that one lone black professor at the university is gonna have to carry 15 to 20 dissertations <laughs> because everybody right. needs them on that committee, right? There's that over there and then there is the the black professor who has to be there to um hold the hands of of all those who are non-black um or do not have the consciousness to educate them to be better um people and i think in mm -hmm. particular um for those who are training those who are going to be working in the education space because i know you have a degree in education too from the university of pennsylvania's mm -hmm. graduate school of education like in the education space when you're teaching these people who are going to teach our babies it's like oh my lord i have one year or i have one semester one to, you know what i mean to like make a radical difference because you're going to go into some of these urban areas and like teach these folks um these kids how yep. to love themselves Can't, mm -hmm. and you don't love them you know um do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, so many. Um, yeah, I mean, I totally appreciate what you're saying. Um, I think one you know, important thing for, for listeners as well um, is to always understand that these systems and structures are things in which we all participate and benefit from in different ways, right? And so you don't have to be white to support and participate and proliferate white supremacy, right? And white supremacist ideology. Um, yeah. And I think it becomes increasingly important to think about how we deal with um, community in the academy in particular, because like all skin folk and kin folk, like in every other place, right? Um, and part of the labor that's associated is that we pass almost like we think about intergenerational trauma, like there's intergenerational trauma within the academy so much that like, because each of us becomes the one and only that we basically just like shuffle that off when a new black professor comes in as like, all right, here's the load I've been carrying. Now you get to carry it, right? And there's never this uh, uh, sort of a, a critical mass that allows us to carry that with each other, right? Um, other than when students who take on additional labor that they should have to do when they're paying for an education in some way, right, to do with you. Um, and so part of what I'll say is that one, when we think about the uh, sort of undue taxation of labor that's associated with that, that absolutely should be compensated for in some way, shape or form in any profession. And what I also tell folks now, and I go through this a lot with um, my brother who's worked in the DEI space in corporate America for some time, um, and has since transitioned out of that as a primary function of his role to a more commonplace role in design. Um, and with other people I talk to, it's like, yo fam, you always reserve the right to not be a DEI expert. 
you reserve the right to do just your job in your job description, like all of your white peers and not sit on all these committees and do all these other things. Um, and so it's also about whether you reclaim your time and agency, because it's not that you're not doing it because you don't care. It's that I'd rather not do it perhaps in certain ways if I'm going to be exploited or tokenized or held up as a magical Negro in front of all of my peers. And I think that is really important about how we take care of ourselves in this moment and how we could actually divest from, uh, start to cultivate white empathy, right? And an effort for systemic change and invest in black joy and black resilience, right? And black healing, right? Because I usually don't have the capacity or energy to do both. When I've been dealing with like some white nonsense all day, right? As we call it, the caucasity all day. And I don't have enough energy to like invest in myself and my people to feel better and be whole. Like that's a losing equation, my friend. So like, you know, when I think about that in the context of what we do as, as academics, and this goes back to like my approach, right? I have chosen to be an educator. That is what my chosen profession is. And so I get paid good money, like a lot of other people get paid good money to do what it is that they do. And I had to understand that the way I deal with addressing whiteness, white supremacy, and all of these other different things in the classroom is fundamentally different than how I address them in a different context, like the street or at a protest. And so part of what I mean by that as staunchly and directly as I can say, I'm an abolitionist as best as I can be in terms of the way I think about things that need to happen and the way I try to govern my actions, not so much as an identity. But what that means in practice is that abolitionism is often a non-starter for people, right? To get to a point of just like saying, no, we just need to like dismantle and divest from police. Like we have to like build them up to that. It's the same thing in the classroom, right? So I think like whiteness as an ideological structure and a way of being in personal embodiment must be completely abolished and destroyed, right? I don't think it has any place in the growth of a productive society, right? We've seen the detriment that that has happened. But in a classroom, I have to operate for more of a reformist politic, right? This notion that whiteness itself can be reformed. Because when people hear you say whiteness, they think you're saying white people, mm. right? And I've had that come against me in a variety of professional threats by Breitbart and Campus Reform and all these other groups that sort of like perverse the language. But what it means in the classroom is that I have to meet you at a reformist starting point to get you to an abolitionist vision and an ending point as an outcome for my class. And that approach is very, very different where it's like, we're going to take the handholding and we're going to do the readings together and we're going to engage. In some parts of my personal life, again, like I'm in relationship with white people because we just are, we live in a white world. And people who I've like been in community with for years who have like earnest questions about things, like I answer them, we engage, we have conversations, but they've also like done some readings. They ask me something specific, right? Like, oh, how do you feel about the popularization of this notion of anti-racism? I read Eva Max Kennedy's book. Bet, let's talk. So it's right? like meeting halfway. Exactly, right? Like you're, you're demonstrating to me that you're putting effort and you're not relying wholly on me, right? Yeah. But in instances outside of the classroom, right? I can't approach things in a reformist way because I have a responsibility to articulate a certain ethic that organizers have taught me, right? That act, uh, activists and, and people who are doing this work day to day and those who are more deeply affected in terms of their material everyday realities have taught me. I have an obligation to be in the LA Times to say, we need to get rid of campus police, right? Not that campus police are a better version of the current police and local police should be more like campus police. That's not what I'm called to do, right? That in a public forum has to be said in that way because of the privilege associated with what I do for a living, where I get to do that, and whatever you know, privileges associated with how people perceive me in the, in the public sphere. Are and you that, ever afraid of doing that? Are you ever afraid of, of speaking? Because you, you are very public in your statements and in everything that you do. Um, and so are you ever afraid of, of, of stepping out in that way? Like there's going to be repercussions, your job, your life. Sure. Like it, where, where does that strength come from to, to do something like that? So I don't know if I would call it fear. And maybe it is fear. I would say I try to exercise caution and concern, but I can't afford to be afraid in that particular way. 
right? Because I know that there are always already people who are experiencing far greater consequences than I ever will as a result of me just saying what needs to be said, because those people have already said it and lost so much more, right? Um, and so I think about now, you know, as a parent and having a family in a way that's different as an individual, um, in that there are certain things that I know we can't engage in as freely, but not, I don't let fear dictate my decisions. I don't try to make fear-based decisions, but I do think I exercise a bit more caution than I did earlier on as like a younger person in the space um, of saying the things that I said in the ways that I said them. But I think there's always a greater threat to myself and to the collective of which I am a part to not speak the truth, mm. right? Um, because by not speaking the truth, it allows for lies to persist. And as Kiyosei Lehman teaches us in, in his amazing text, Heavy, like lies are at the bedrock of black suffering in this country. And so I have a responsibility that if I have the mic, that I have to tell the truth. And if I can't tell the truth, I need to pass the mic to somebody who can. And then when they tell the truth, I need to do whatever I can to ensure that they're protected at all costs. And so I think there's a reasonable sense to be fearful. Like I've had death threats like on my life and those of my family, people threatening to come up to my job to like find out where I live. Um, but again, like, like my daddy is from Tuskegee, Alabama, right? Like grew up in the height of the civil rights movement, earned his wings at Moton Airfield where Tuskegee Airmen learned to fly. And the things that he had to experience and see every day just going up in that moment and all those people who came before him, right? All of the blood that's in the soil in Tuskegee and in Greensboro um, and really all over this country, including indigenous people, right? Like I have an obligation to speak truth to power in the same way that they did at the possible consequence of whatever it means for me materially, because at the end of the day, I would probably be okay, right? Like I've gone to all the right schools. I've gotten all the right degrees. I can speak the white man's language. I can find a way to survive. But while I got the mic right now and I have this moment, I have to do what I'm supposed to do in order to make sure that we are advancing in the way that organizers and activists are teaching us to do. Like that's my responsibility. And I think that's the really critical question of what allyship means, right? Even within your own community. If you are not willing to take stock of and put on the line the associated risks to ensure that we can all be free, then you're not ready to do this work. Mm. You're just not. And I always ask myself, ask others, and they say they want to do things that are like going to make their organization anti-racist. It's like, well, what are you willing to give up? Because right now, all of your leadership is white, but you want to diversify. And you can't just add five more positions, right? Like some of these white people actually got to go. So are they willing to do that, right? Am I willing to ensure that I don't take up as much space as I'm afforded and that space is properly, you know, better allocated to other voices that need to be at the center? Um, and, you know, and that's something I'm working on and still trying to deal with because like ego is a real big part of this, especially as an academic, right? Um, but like, what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to risk and do without so that more people can have? And if we can't answer that question and actually commit to the exercise of that, then you're not really ready to do allyship work because it's not really about allyship, right? It's about accomplishment. It's about actually being in the struggle with that person, assuming the same levels of risk as best you can, even if you can't ensure that, uh, because that's what solidarity looks like. It's a commitment to struggle with and for people on a constant and consistent basis. Allyship is a thing you get to kind of selectively do in and out of in ways that are performative that just look better optically to everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. And so the sort of last point I'll make about the allyship piece in terms of like the way that you're engaged is we must be deferential to those who are experiencing the thing that we say we're trying to undo. We should follow their leadership. We should listen to what it is that they say. We should believe the narratives instead of questioning them based on our own logics or understanding. And if we can do that, then they will be able to determine whether we are good at being allies or good at being accomplices. We can't determine that alone, right? That's something that the community that we're trying to uh, support and things that we're trying to undo can actually have happen. And the last piece I'll say about the being engaged is that being engaged doesn't mean just being in relationship with those communities, right? It means taking whatever it is that you've learned as a result and doing that shit in your own community, 
right? Like white folks getting with other white folks and undoing the things that happen. It's checking your boss when they say something racist, you know, in a locker room or, you know, uh, confronting a racist policy that disenfranchises black women from accessing leadership opportunities in your organization. Like that's the work. Like you can go to like a BLM meeting, I guess, if you want to, but your work is really with like those white communities from which you are benefiting below this overall structure of white supremacy. And it's the same thing with men. Like, yeah, you can go to Women's March, fam. But when you go to the barbershop, you need to be interrupting toxic masculinity in those spaces on an everyday basis, right? When you're at the cookout with your uncles, you need to be able to step up and say something and make it known that that's not right and things need to change. Um, because if we're not doing this work with those who are in our immediate proximity, then we're fundamentally failing because all organizing and activism is fundamentally local, right? We get in this space where we think it's national and international and it's about the, you know, the conferences and the flyers and everything else, and it's not, it's local. So when I see people who like write about this stuff and profess this stuff on stage, and then I look at how they treat people in their immediate proximity, right? then I know whether you're really about this life, period, right? And we see this a lot. Like you see with politicians all the time, you, you wanna run for a district that you don't even live in. You bought a house there in some part of town to represent those folks and you don't even live there, right? It's like, oh, you wanna like run for mayor of this city, but you actually aren't even in good standing with the people in this city. Like how, how does that work? It's the same thing with professing to be an ally, an accomplice or an activist. And that's always what I'm gonna ask. Right. Uh, there's a, a dope scholar and you can appreciate this. You were at Columbia. So, you know, Chris Evans, like the homies. Um, there's our other homie, Emory Pachauer, who's a, a scholar at Michigan State. And he um, wrote two books. One was with Mark Lamont Hill about schooling hip hop. And another was about hip hop culture and college students' lives. And I brought him to Arizona. He's a DJ by training. Um, and one of the things he said in his talk that always stuck with me is like, you know, he runs into so many people that say they're like down with hip hop and like they're hip hop scholars. And he'll just ask them, so like, where is hip hop happening in your city? And they like don't know. Right? They don't know where the jams are. They don't know where graffiti is located. Right? They don't know what the record store is. And I think about that a lot about how we profess these sets of ideals and politics, but we don't even know where they are in our immediate proximity. Right? And that to me is the true testament of whether you really commit to this work, not whether everybody knows about it on Twitter because you posted something about it. It's like if I ask somebody who's at your same institution or someone who's in your neighborhood who you are and what you're about, what will they tell me? Will it match up with what you say about yourself or the way the world thinks about you? And if it doesn't, then again, I know you're not about that life and that we're just not doing the same exercise. And so I try to live in a way that, yes, does come with some sort of national perspective or profile, but in a way that those who are in my immediate proximity will always have a tongue of good rapport. And if I can't ensure that, right, then everything else doesn't matter. <laughs> Charles, that's a word. I just you, be talking, man. It, you know, honestly, and people aren't going to see this, but like literally Charles is drinking something right now because literally that was just like the most amazing flow uh and you deserve you deserve to quench your uh your thirst on that and, and <laughs> um I, I you know honestly i don't have much more to ask you after that you i think you pretty much answered everything but you did mention your daughter um and i think that that is the perfect way that i i can close this conversation now you mentioned your daughter and uh for all those who don't know charles just became a dad so congratulations dad uh, i'm sure she, or she's already engaging with everything that you're you're talking about on this podcast so she's on, in, a, in a in a great space um oh she got woke onesies for sure oh she got <laughs> We got one with Malcolm on it. We got like prison schools, not prisons hashtags on. She's already in it. She's already she's in it. And her in. name and her name is Freedom. Mm. Like she is literally birthed from and in this moment. What's, what's her full name? Freedom Amaya Ali Davis. Wow, that's incredible. Freedom. So her teachers are gonna have a fit, but yeah. it was as strong and as black as we could make it. 
she's she's gonna be coming from some powerful uh from some powerful people um according to like the stories that you've told on this podcast so i'm sure she's gonna do you proud um i i guess my last question for you is um around uh black futures uh and what do you hope a black future for your daughter will look like when she grows up um you know obviously we are very much so in the trenches and there are a lot of Mm -hmm. things that need to change and there are a lot of conversations that need to be had and and a lot of things that need to be dismantled um but thinking about when freedom is is our age right um what do you hope that black future will look like for her so one of the things that i'm learning but came into parenthood with in part because for my partner and i we both have siblings who are younger who have had kids already. And so we've been an auntie and uncle longer than we've been parents. Um, And one of the things I think you learn very quickly about the role of being a parent is there are two things that sort of come along with that amongst many other things. One is that your child feels loved and they feel protected and safe. And so to me, thinking about a future for freedom is one where she also feels love and protection and safety. And that means fundamentally undoing the things as they are in this particular moment, which we're always in the process of doing. But love again starts proximally, right? And so for me, good love, and, and it's interesting because you know, as someone who thinks about these things in certain ways, you know, my partner and I had a lot of conversations about like the gendering of the baby. And it's even like to be able to call them like your daughter instead of your child or whatever the case is, right? Um, and, and what we also sort of resolved ourselves to is, you know, part of this is the, the, the ways in which society is functioning as it's present, the ways that we were socialized, but it was really that we would hold deliberative space that freedom can and will be whoever it is that they want to be and how they see themselves throughout their entire life with us, which means if at any point in time they feel their gender is something other than what it's been assigned, that we hold the space in the same way we're learning, you know, and what I'll say, you know, for maybe like a better word, like the courageous sort of approach that Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union have taken in a public form and fashion as someone who said openly, like, I don't know all of the things that I'm learning, right? That we like hold a deliberative space to love our child unconditionally, especially as it comes to how they decide to show up and present in the world. Um, and so I envision a world for them at the stage that I'm at now where that is something that isn't even questioned, right? Particularly if they decide to um, identify in ways that are different than that was which is assigned. Um, and I think also love means that they show up into spaces and places in which they are valued, which means it doesn't have to be going to the same institutions that you know, me and her mom went to or going through the same pathways or being pressed upon the expectations of this quote unquote black excellence that is only limited to what the white imagination has constructed for us, right? It's that we just provide the space for like her to do whatever it is that she wants to do in her life and that the world will also give her that space with grace and compassion. And I think from a protection and safety standpoint, given all of what we know about how Black men in particular, but patriarchy more generally, um, contributes to the harm of Black women and girls and Black trans people, right? That at, for, at best, I envision doing work now that will help create a world in which that is less of a risk for her to just walk about in her everyday life, right? As you know, you're still in New York. I've spent time in New York, as I mentioned. Um, and I think about specific cultural dynamics of New York and what it means to be a Black woman in that space, right? Or a Black trans person. Like, I want her to be able to walk down 125th and not feel like she's unsafe. Mm. I have to constantly come back cat calling in part because the conversations I mentioned earlier that aren't happening in the barbershop or on the cookout or in the stoop or whatever, right? That we are cultivating a world in which black women and trans folks don't have to be fearful of just existing, 
right? Or their ability to say no. And so a Black future for me looks like a space in which the full liberation of Black women, trans people, and queer people is actualized in a way that should my child grow up in any of those ways in, in the way they identify, they are not living in fear of retribution or harm just by existing who it is that they are. And if we can cultivate that world, right? If we can build a world around what Kia Lehman calls good love, healthy choices, and second chances, right? Because again, we're going to mess up. We're going to have those things. But when we mess up, the problem is that certain people face consequences and other people face none. And those that do face consequences face them disproportionately and harsher than do other folks, right? So what does a world look like where second chances are already built in in the same way they are for those who already benefit from power and privilege, right? Can we make sure that that world exists by ensuring people feel valued, right? Do they have the right options and healthy choices to make? People always say like, um, you know, oh, I made better choices than so-and-so. And it's like, well, you had better choices, right? So how do we make broader access to those choices so that people can be healthy? And then again, like provide people ways for restoration rather than retribution when accountability needs to be instilled and we need to move forward. And that's what I would hope a world in which freedom can literally be free might look like 35 years from now. Mm. Dr. Charles H.F. Davis, thank you so much for your time, man. I appreciate you. Pleasure is mine, brother. I appreciate you.